Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Modern Classrooms podcast. My name is Kate Gaskell. I'm the head of teaching and learning at Modern Classrooms. And today we will begin a two episode series on collaboration, student collaboration. Today we'll focus on planning for a whole class collaborative activities and routines. And next week we'll focus on creating a classroom culture that fosters organic collaboration between students directly. So to talk about planning for collaboration, I am joined by two of the finest educators I have gotten to meet. I'm so excited for this one. Tavia Clemendor and Emily Culp. I love working with both of these teachers. Um, They are two of the most honestly selfless educators who truly, truly invest and care about kids and other teachers also. So Tavia is a high school science teacher, Tavia Clemendor in Reedsville, North Carolina. And I got to meet Tavia last summer through our Modern Classrooms office hours. Um, If you don't know, we hold office hours on Zoom every Tuesday. And Tavia, I like to call Tavia our resident office hours rock star. She's the the expert. Um, If you you come for no other reason to office hours, come for Tavia. Um, She began working with Modern Classrooms through her school, actually. Uh, Tavia, can you tell us a little bit more about your teaching career and how you came to find Modern Classrooms? Um, so I have been working at Reesville High School. This is my second year there, uh, but this is my sixth year of teaching. I spent the first four years on the other side of the county at McMichael High School, and I currently teach biology and IB biology, And but I have taught other sciences. I've taught every science at the high school level except for earth science. And I got introduced, ironically enough, to the Modern Classroom Project through Twitter. Mm. Uh, not much of a social media person, and I never liked Twitter. But my I see an instructional coach at our school had posted a video about it. And I have been trying to get a mastery-based system into school, but it's hard to get principals to kind of grasp the idea behind it sometimes. Um, so when I seen it, I was in love with it even before I knew about a free course or anything. So I watched the Edutopia video and then I emailed him back and he was like, oh, don't worry. We're going to take care of it. We're going to do it. So uh, I went through the free course and just went through the different modules and I tried it in one classroom as a science minded person. I had test subjects. Why not? Uh, so I tried it last spring and then we did a cohort as a school and I completed, actually go through all the steps. And now I do it full time. I love that. You're, Tavia, you're not the first one who found us on Twitter. I always think that's really interesting. Power of social media. Who knew? Also with me is Emily Culp, a middle school English teacher at DC International School. Emily and I got to work together to support Modern Classrooms educators in our summer fellowship this past summer, all virtually, of course, um, but she has been teaching with Modern Classrooms for two years. Emily, can you share a little bit about your career in education and how you got started with Modern Classrooms? Yeah, sure. So this is my 10th year teaching middle school English. I've taught at six different middle schools, mostly in the Washington, D.C. area. And I think I had two main drivers towards Modern Classrooms. So The blending learning piece, I've been interested in that for years. Time is like this huge commodity in teaching, and my brain really works on an efficiency model. 
So the basic fact that like technology can make teaching more efficient, right? It can free the teacher up to focus on the most artful aspects of teaching and not focus on those rote aspects of teaching. Um, And at the same time, students lack a lot of tech skills and they need more practice. They have these devices, but they don't necessarily know how to use them properly. So I actually switched jobs a few years ago to a one-to-one device setting. And then um, I ended up at DCI. And I think what specifically drew me to modern classrooms was the self-pacing aspect of it. So DCI started a cohort of modern classroom teachers. And when I heard about the self-pacing, I was really interested because I had this huge differentiation problem. Like every year I have a huge range of learners. I can't reach them all every day. Um, Some students were extremely dependent on me and they would usually consume most of my attention and energy. And I just wanted to be able to push all students to become more independent and more self-reliant. I can relate with so much of what you're saying. And I love when you talk about the, the efficiency of time being so important. You know, teacher, teacher love is astounding. Our passion is awe-inspiring, but our time is always finite. And so is our energy. We can't, we can't forget that. Um, I'm really excited to have you both on today to talk about collaboration and specifically how teachers can plan for whole class collaborative experiences. One of the most beautiful aspects of the modern classroom instructional model is that it allows for really great creativity. We all the time are encouraging teachers to apply blended self-paced mastery-based tenants to best serve their students. And I felt like I was making this model mine and I was really coming into my own as a modern classrooms educator when I found ways to incorporate frequent collaboration and discussion. Uh, I think there's sometimes a misconception that modern classrooms educators don't do whole group activities or we are always on the computers and that is just categorically false. Uh, We encourage teachers to shift instruction So those, you know, those don't miss, can't miss direct instruction type lessons, we want those on instructional videos so kids can pause, rewind and access content when they're ready for it. Like you said, Emily, but we want to reserve whole class time, whether that's in, you know, distance learning or in the physical school, we want to reserve that whole class time for rich collaborative experiences like labs or seminars or debates. So I guess, you know, Tavi, I loved when you said that you were, you wanted to take a science approach. Um, I want to ask you with, what do you do with whole class activities and how do you, how do you structure those in, in units in your courses? Well, it looks different in both environments. In the virtual environment, Kahoot and Pear Deck, I like Kahoot because it's a game and kids, no matter if they're five or 15, they jump at the chance to play a game. And it's it's different than just me standing there talking at them too, especially in a virtual environment. So we do those a lot as a group. And the purpose is for me to kind of see where they are and to also kind of reflect on what I have done. And also, I like Pear Decks because, to me, it's kind of like a little mini lecture. Kahoot, we kind of just talk about the questions as we go through it. But Pear Deck, it's especially I like to use for harder concepts. I can give a little more detail that I may not give in a lecture video. So I I really like that. Face-to-face, I do like a lot of small group activities. So um, we do like hot seat or they'll be in small groups where I give them a task and they have to work together to complete the task. Oh, can you tell me about hot seat? I want to learn more about this. So hot seat, 
typically it works better if they have assigned seats because you kind of know who sits where. And you put questions in an envelope or just whatever on a sheet of paper and you tape them under the seat. I love that. You don't have to do it to every student. You can pick, maybe you just want to talk to five that day and you have them reach under the seat. And if there's a question there, they get the opportunity to answer it. And the reason you are specific about your choosing is because Johnny may be on lesson three, but Tammy still be on lesson one. So I don't want to give her a lesson three question. Mm -hmm. Um, So you kind of, it kind of works better if they have an assigned seat. That is so smart in a self-paced environment. That's a really good way to do, yeah, a quick discussion when you know students are at different parts. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it kind of opens up, that opens up the floor for more of a whole group conversation. So I like to do that a lot in face-to-face. And then we do labs you know, typical science stuff. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that question about labs because we've had some interesting conversations in office hours about, you know, in a self-paced environment when you structure those. Um, Emily, what do you, what is collaboration? Um, what, what do you plan whole group activities for your students and how do you structure those in? Yeah. I'm so glad we're talking about this because I feel like I mostly speak with um, fellow English teachers trying to adopt this model. And this is a huge concern. Um, A lot of Englishy stuff like really needs to be whole class. So I would say my biggest piece of advice is just to experiment and try different things. Um, Some of the main things we do whole class in English are like whole class close readings of short texts and whole class discussions in a variety of different formats. And there would also be like those occasional special events, like maybe you bring in an author as a guest speaker, or you ask a kid to present like a book talk or um, like a oral presentation of some kind about what they're reading to the class. So those are probably my main ones. And I'm happy to go into more detail about them later. Yeah, I definitely want to get back to the, the, how you, how you put the short readings into the self-paced environment and what that looks like. So as our, as our listeners know, self-pacing is integral to a modern classroom. Um, Mastery-based learning must be accompanied by self-paced learning because students are human. You know, they don't, they don't master content at the same time and in the same ways. Um, so yeah, let's, Emily, I want to, let's, let's pick up this point about the short readings and special events simply by the nature of the class being set up. Students are in different places at, within a, the same unit. So how does that work in your English classroom with those examples you gave? Right. It definitely depends on the activity. I think with close reading short text. It usually doesn't matter as much if a student has or has not completed the prior work because it's sort of a self-contained reading and analysis activity. Of course, it'd be really different if you are reading, um, if you're doing a novel study, if you have a whole book to cover with your class, I would say I really carefully select the key passages that we have to read together as a group. And before I go into those key passages, I would start with like a student-led summary of prior chapters so that even if they are not caught up to the pace of the class, they can still get that background knowledge and benefit from that and come to the discussion with that in mind. Yeah, but for just the short text, I think no matter where they are pacing-wise, they can just, um, you know, you block off that day, you let students know that that is going to be the day that this is happening, and they can just launch in and um, just read and analyze that text during that self-contained day. That's kind of like a like a little sabbatical from the self-pacing. Interesting. And then what, do you, what about bigger discussions or uh, seminars, if you will? 
right? So I would say if it's a cumulative or summative discussion, uh, you would have to give all students enough time to prepare for the discussion to their own degree, even if they're working at different paces. So the most common way I did this was probably to give one or two class periods to prepare before the discussion. And so that might look like um, a student takes that whole time and maybe just prepares um, one idea and one piece of evidence to present. And then, of course, a student sitting right beside them might be able to research 10 sources and write down a ton of ideas, a ton of evidence, um, a ton of questions that they want to bring to that discussion. But as long as all students have been given the opportunity to prep at least, you know, uh, an amount that would meet teacher expectations, um, then they can all move on to the discussion at the same time. So if you're holding your discussion on Thursday, maybe you give Tuesday and Wednesday as discussion prep days. And then, you know, once you get to those discussion prep days, everyone needs to drop what they're doing and move to discussion prep. I did something kind of similar in my social studies classrooms when I would have a, a mid-unit Socratic or Paideia seminar, or if I was doing like a discussion-based activity like speed dating or concentric circles. Um, yeah, so I, I, I hear so much of what you're saying. Um, Tavia, we know that, yeah, labs and science, they play such a crucial role. Um, how, do you, how do you do that in a self-paced classroom? How do you build in that structure, knowing that kids are going to be at different places within a unit? Well, at the start of every unit, I give a student the guide for the unit so they can see exactly when labs are planned. And there's so much you have to complete by lab day. So you don't have to do everything by the time lab day comes. You don't have to have all your assignments complete. Usually, if you have watched the lecture video, you're in good shape. So I make sure that they do that. And I have cushion in between because like you said, everybody doesn't move at the same pace, but I leave enough cushion to where they have a little more time before lab day. And then my high flyers, I also do extra projects. So then my higher flyers who usually finish everything exactly the way I planned it, there's usually something for them to do. So then maybe they get to help me prep for a lab or if they have a project, like I do a vocabulary dictionary in biology, if they want to work on that. Um, in the meantime, if they finish, I haven't ran across a student that always is finished. They're usually finishing right on time. I, I try to always think about if a student is getting ready. Uh, so I plan everything on a two-day scale. So all my lessons are designed for a 90-minute class period, but I give you two class periods to get a lesson done. So then on the third day, that's when we start whatever whole class activity we want to do. That's only going to review the first lesson. So even if you've gone to lesson two or lesson three, we're only reviewing what was in lesson one, because by then everybody should have completed lesson one. I, I, yeah, I love that. I did, I did something similar oftentimes with my, with my daily discussion piece. And Tavia, you said two pieces that I, and Emily, you did as well on the point of like, we, we plan with differentiation in mind, really, you know, so you're, you have activities, you know, some kids are going to by lab day, by seminar day, um, they're going to, you know, they're going to be ahead. They're going to surpass, uh, what they need to have done to participate actively. And that whole group activity. Um, but 
you know, we've got things for them to do. And those are, you know, for those of you who've taken the free course or the virtual mentorship program, those are what we might call aspire to do activities, um, still very meaningful and truly differentiated. And we yet are providing access for students who might need a little more time. We've got them in mind as we plan. What strategies do you use to keep kids, you know, relatively on pace? Um, so Tavia, you know, other than, I know you mentioned, you know, the, they have the calendar, right? At the beginning, they know when they're coming. And we just mentioned like planning, you know, with differentiation in mind. Strategies you use to keep kids on pace so they're ready to participate um, actively on lab day, on seminar day? Well, I try to really get them to use their pacing tracker, which has been a little more difficult virtually, but in a face-to-face, they look forward to seeing the pacing tracker and seeing where they were and see how they move. So I use that a lot. And then I also do weekly check-ins. So it got, because I have so many students and with such a small block of time, it's impossible to get through all of them in even a couple of days. So I can only meet with them usually once a week, one-on-one, and we kind of talk about different things, Um, not just necessarily about grades, especially those who aren't doing much. We kind of talk about what's what's going on and kind of work in grades if need be, but it's more about talking to them about what's going on. So I do weekly check-ins with them. I do action plans. It's a formal sheet that we fill out together. We look at what they are missing. We look at what's really important, like you really, really need to do this. Uh, We look at, well, if you don't get to this, it's okay. Uh, And we kind of organize and help them organize to to get better so they don't fall too, too far behind. I also like to use my breakout rooms. They're really good for one-on-one conferencing too. Breakout rooms have, I've heard from so many teachers that, and, you know, I know different districts have different policies about their use, but I know that those have been really, really helpful in distance learning. Um, Emily, what about you? You've got, you've got little ones, sixth grade is little to me and Tavia coming from high school. <laughs> what about, what about your classroom? Yeah. Um, well, I agree with everything that's been said. I think something that's in common with what we're all saying is that building in those should do's and those aspire to do's really helps. So I think in distance learning, we have these four day weeks. So how I'm thinking about the weeks is usually there's two must do tasks and one should do task in like an average week. So I'm usually focused on coaching the kids through those two must do's, but I know that I'm going to have X number of students in each class that by Thursday, they're ready to kind of independently take on that should do or that aspire to do task. And that Tavia used the word cushion. I love that. I usually say buffer, but that time is so helpful in sixth grade. Like they really have to be pretty close pace with each other or it gets too abstract. So they're usually in like a three day window of like, they're maybe one day behind on pace or like a little bit ahead. Sometimes it's just a half a lesson behind or ahead. And I think a key to helping me manage that is I tend to make the lessons really short. And they're things that students could accomplish in one class period, if they are really focused and on task. Um, And so then it's very concrete for me to be able to say, it's Monday, you have to do lesson one, you should be able to finish lesson one by the end of the day. And then that generally keeps them within that like two or three lesson window. So every week, 
they usually are able to start on the same pace in the next week because of those systems in place. Definitely. What do both of you do if you have a student who is absent for the whole group activity or they weren't able to participate for some reason? Well, the great thing about being virtual is Zoom records everything. So I upload all my Zoom recordings to Canvas and I label them so they know what we talked about in the video. Sometimes we Zoom and when I, it's just, hey guys, how are you? Anything you need? Okay, go ahead and get started. Um, then some days we actually do a whole class activity. And even though you're not there, you can watch the video and kind of see what we did. So I do do the Zoom recordings and then... Usually there are enough absent that when they do return, I can pull them aside and put them in a small group conversation of just us. Now, we may not do the whole thing like I might have done with the rest of the class, but I go through it enough with them so they can kind of get a gist and I can get a feel for where they are. Yeah. Tavi, if you had a student in like in physical school who, for one reason or another, they didn't get pre-work done before the lab, what do you do in that situation? Well, because I have such a generous heart, the first time I give you a reprieve, we talk about it, you know, and then I usually would pair them in a group of more studious students that can help them along. So first time, okay, this is your warning. And after that, we have to have a conversation about why you're not being on pace. And if I have to call home, I call home um, because that's important, especially teaching IB. That's a big part of the program. So you need to be able to participate in labs. So the second time, you don't get to participate in the actual lab. And then the third time, it's time to have a conversation with someone else because, you know, we're going to do all the steps in between. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about action plans. We're going to try to put you on a path for success. But if you're still not following it by the third time, it's time to bring in some big guns. Yeah, you definitely have a, a clear path for, for interventions. Emily, what do you do um, if you have a student who's absent for that discussion, um, that author talk, whatever the whole group activity is, or they weren't able to participate for some reason? Yeah. Um, in sixth grade, if they were working towards this summative discussion all week, and then on the day of the discussion, they're not there. I'm thinking back to physical school. Like it was the most frustrating thing um, because, you know, you carefully plan your discussion groups and it's a very careful balance of all the personalities in your classroom. So I think um, what I used to do was I would usually have like a retake discussion time that I planned because I knew I would have this problem. And let's say that might be at like lunch tutoring or after school tutoring. And uh, two groups of students usually would come. The kids who were absent could come, but also kids just trying to revise and improve their performance. And the discussion could come to do a retake. And it, it was just really helpful to have that time planned in advance because then students from all classes could come and discuss together And because you have to have a critical mass in order to have a, a good discussion, right? Um, something that's been helpful to learn about this year has been parlayideas.com, which is this online discussion uh, website that helps you to plan and assess online discussions and live discussions. Now that I know about that tool, I think I'm going to be using that to help facilitate makeup discussions as well, because it could allow students who are not there in person to have the verbal discussion to still capture their thoughts and debate back and forth with their peers in a written online format. 
Yeah. Parlay, parlay ideas is one of those tools that, uh, I keep hearing over and over again. And I think it's going to be one of those that's around for the long haul, uh, that teachers maybe came to it, um, um, you know, during the pandemic and distance learning, but I think it's going to be one that sticks. What do you think if someone, if someone wants to push back and say, are these whole group activities, are they really necessary? Um, what would you say the benefits of these are for your class? And how do you think this instructional model specifically, um, helps students prepare to participate? Yeah, I mean, there are some things that you can only do whole class. Um, I'm especially thinking about English standards right now, but like explicitly part of our job as English teachers is to teach students to be able to discuss collaboratively with the others. That's literally a standard and how to um, be able to discuss text, how to be able to give an oral presentation in front of an audience. And you can't do those things without having modeling and having practice whole class, I think the model does help them to prepare because they can practice to different levels and to different extents, right? And also, besides even the preparation before, it allows them to revise, right? Like a sixth grader is not going to be able to give an amazing oral presentation on their first time. That's just not how life works. So the ability that they could go back and try again at a discussion or try again at an oral presentation Um, I think that's really, really important to the kids and it helps them be successful. So I just, whatever I'm planning, I just always assume I will have a group of students who are going to come back and revise this after. And I just always plan for, you know, to have that in mind for the next day or the day after to like allow class time for that experience. That is such a good reminder uh, to take our our modern classroom mindset of mastery and revision, and we can apply it to whole class activities as well. I so much of what you were saying, Emily, really resonated with me as a social studies teacher because, of course, discussion was invaluable for diving deeper into content and text specifically. Um, collaborative activities, you know, we could we could really get into a tough historical document by going through it together in a seminar and students would walk out much more confident, perhaps even right, ready to, you know, do sourcing activities to write an essay. The discussion and collaborative activities, you know, were essential uh, in the social studies. Our C3 standards call for us to communicate conclusions and take in formed action. And a lot of times, of course, that's going to be through a whole group activity. And I found that the discussion, you know, the discussion piece and collaboration itself is a, that's a skill students need to participate in society and to be heard, and to advocate for policies that will improve their lives. And I really loved how my discussion was better when students felt comfortable, of course, with each other, which is something we can talk about in a little bit. But when the students were just, when I was holding them to mastery about the content along the way, you know, so in our lessons, when they were learning content before we got to a mid-unit seminar, I found that students were a little more vocal because they were more confident because they knew what they were saying had past mastery checks, uh, that they had the right information. And it was, that was really, really good to see. Tavia, you mentioned it earlier, you know, that hands-on experience, the whole class activities being so important in the IB environment. What are the values of those activities and how does this instructional model help prepare your students to participate? I like doing those primarily because they listen to each other better than they listen to me. My classes are typically kind of small. So I can afford to do small groups of like three. 
And so usually I can have a person who's pretty good in each group. And I kind of have all levels in each group. And I assign roles to each person in the group. Because I don't want the leader to feel like they have to do it all. And I don't want the person who is typically a little slower to feel like nobody wants my, my help because I don't know as much as everybody else. So I kind of try to assign roles and make them kind of work together because you have to do your part in order for the project to or the activity to go. And I assign different, not necessarily, not more like roles, but like within the assignment, I need you specifically to do this part or guide them through this part. So it's a lot of very careful planning mm-hmm. and um, and it makes it difficult when people don't show up like particularly this unit we're getting ready to go into, there are a lot of labs. So these are labs that they can do from home, but I needed you to know that this is what you're going to need for those labs so you can go purchase them. Or if you need help purchasing them, let me know so we can work something out, you know, work together, all that good stuff. So I kind of give them the information ahead of time so they know what to expect. And then they can kind of plan accordingly for the day of. That's really cool that you're still able to do some labs at home. Um, how's that going? Well, we haven't actually did it yet. We start okay. next week. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We're going to see how it goes and um, see how it goes. Well, we did do one lab. We did a pond lab and we all, we have a creek that runs behind the campus. So we walked to the creek and got pond samples and we did that and everybody had their own station and we didn't do sharing and we had to sanitize and all that. So yeah, we're going to see how it goes, but. I try to give them heads up. Even in class, we use Remind a lot. Mm-hmm. And when I know I need you to be in class, look, guys, I really need y'all to be in class tomorrow. And, you know, for the most part, that works. They they show up when I tell them to show up, which sounds crazy, right? But <laughs> I think that's really big. I, I love Remind and taking that idea to communicate to students and families. Like, this is a really big day. We're doing X. You can't miss it, um, you know, Please, please come do whatever you have to, to take care of what you need to take care of. Um, You reminded me so much just there when you talked about when you went and got your samples and how, you know, there could be no sharing of samples this year and because of social distancing um, and, you know, needing to keep clean surfaces. I was just thinking about one of my routines that I did daily and my favorite shift that I made, you know, I taught in the same school as Kareem Farah, our co-founder of Modern Classrooms Project. And I saw his class and I was, I was definitely, I was so inspired. I loved a lot of the mastery based self-pacing and I, you know, and I, I tried it, but there was just something missing. And again, it really felt like it became my own when I got to open up class every day with a sourcing discussion. And I would drop sources in these, I called them academic conversation bags. So immediately after our do now or warm up, a kid in each group would grab a bag off a hook on a bulletin board. And in there, I just, that I'd had the bags to make my life easier because I could drop the sources, the question prompts, whatever we were working with that day. And that kicked my collaboration up 10 notches. I felt so much better with the instructional model. Model. And we were, we were done with it very quickly after our do now. Um, but I was just thinking, I was like, well, I would have to completely redo that um, in physical school in light of social distancing. Hey there, listeners, it's Zach here. Just dropping in to let you know that Tony Rose's in-person meetup at ISTE is officially on. 
If you're attending the ISTE conference in New Orleans from June 26th through the 29th, she'd love to get to know you. So I'm putting a link in the show notes to a form that you can fill out if you'll be attending the conference so she can schedule that meetup. And of course, if you've got questions or comments about the meetup or anything else podcast related, you can always reach us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And as always, thank you for listening. We do appreciate that. And now let's get back into this old episode from the archive. I'm curious if you both have routines that you use to open or close class around collaboration or discussion. Not really so much to close class. Class closing is usually informal because usually they're in their own world, whatever they need to get done. When it's time to close class, I kind of just bring them together. We have final thoughts, make sure nobody needs anything and they're dismissed. Opening class is a little different. They do their do now. And while I'm going through with them for do nows, I do like a warm up and it'll be usually a question. A lot of times it's multiple choice because we we can do those pretty quick. They have to write it down in their notebook. They have to identify in IB. They have to identify a command term if it's a command term in it. And they have to identify what the question is about. In my honors biology class, they have to identify keywords in the question. And then they have to go through the process of elimination. Then we come back as a class and we do a poll. Uh, In Zoom, we do polls. In class, they'll write their answer on a slip of paper and we'll count them out. And then we'll talk about why the answers are wrong or why the correct answer is correct. And that usually takes about 10 minutes, I guess. And that's usually how I open class. Emily, what about you? Yeah, well, I am a big fan of your weather check do now, Kate. So I usually start with that. I mean, that's very individual, but I like them to check in individually. And it's actually been a really great thing for them to do while they're sitting in a Zoom waiting room. Um, And I found for sixth graders, it takes away a little bit of like, they feel very anxious when they're just like waiting for something to load on their computer. So that's a good use of a couple minutes. And then once they get into Zoom, usually, honestly, we've just been starting doing like fun or silly Zoom chat questions just to like build a little bit of community and connection. Um, It gives me a little buffer time to troubleshoot technology problems. And it just gives them a chance to like be kids and say like ridiculous stuff to each other, either verbally or in the Zoom chat. And I think they just feel a little bit more comfortable coming into class and then we'll shift into whatever is the academic focus that we need to move to. I love that. That's such a good reminder just of those developmental needs. Yeah. Sixth graders are going to get a little antsy waiting for, for tech to load. We'll put the weather check do now. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, I'm, I'm curious what successful strategies. So you've, you have your opening or closing uh, activities. What have been good ways to get kids meaningfully conversing with each other? So one activity I like to do is the question envelope. And the question envelope is kind of like a word association game. So you put them, you can do it individually or you can put them in small groups. To me, small groups is more fun. (laughs) So you put them in small groups, everybody gets an envelope. And inside their envelope, there's a topic. You can only write one thing about the topic on the paper. Well, it works great the first two or three rounds, but usually by the time you get to the fourth round, you really have to dig deep. Mm -hmm. 
or uh, concepts. And so it's interesting to walk around and listen to their conversations because they were like, no, look, that means the same thing. So it's, so it's very interesting um, to do that. But before we can even get to that point, like she was saying, we they have to get to a point of being comfortable with each other. So the first week, we don't even talk about content. We talk about everything, but, you know, we talk about what they're into. Last year, I made them do collages. They picked a partner and I gave them all these magazines and they interviewed them. And then they had to make a collage about what they interviewed them about. So a lot of doing getting to know you, getting comfortable being around you. So that way, when we get ready to do those type of activities, nobody feels like they can be they have to be left out because we talk like just normal conversation without it even being about school. That is so big. I was very guilty of doing that, uh, of not doing that rather in my first, my first year of teaching, I was very enthusiastic and very much wanted to, to let's get learning, let's get going. And I couldn't understand why in my, in my turn and talks and my think pair shares and my table talks, people weren't talking and it was like, well, it's pretty awkward to talk to people you don't know, frankly. And we we need to take that time to to making sure that kids kids are comfortable in the classroom environment and they're comfortable with the people around them. I'm a teacher, frankly, I I very much believed in giving kids input on where they sat. I didn't didn't mean that you'd always get to sit by your best friend. Uh, and if I noticed, you know, some, if I noticed that things were a little too friendly, we might mix up the seating. Um, but I, I, I wanted to flex seat, uh, to meet, you know, I guess kind of meet academic needs, of course, but I also wanted to take student voice was really important. And when I was making those groups, just, I really wanted to know where you were going to feel the most comfortable or uncomfortable. And that, that was crucial. Another thing that I was very guilty of in my first year of teaching when it came to discussion is I'd expect kids to start conversing with one another, but I would hit them with a really hard question at first. I hadn't learned the art of kind of the soft warm up question. And um, that's always something that I use whenever I pitch questions to students. You know, it can be the most complex text uh, that we are going to be discussing. But I want that first question to be a point of access and something that everybody can kind of can ramp up into tougher questions through. Emily, what do you do with your sixth graders about discussions and conversation norms? Yeah, a lot of what you both just said has been really resonating with me. I think if you had asked me this question a year ago, I probably would really focus on, yeah, like explicitly teaching discussion norms, like here are sentence starters you should use. Um, you should be able to say everyone's name that's in your group. You should track the speaker one voice at a time, that type thing. Um, and I think working with them over time to be able to pose their own questions and to be able to call on each other or not have to use hands and kind of have a natural flow to the discussion. Uh, but honestly, this year, I have been thinking more about that whole relationship and building community piece and making sure the students are comfortable with that, with each other and also like building up breakout room stamina, if that makes sense. So making sure the students in the beginning of the year got to do silly things with just one partner and then slowly building up to more academic things with slightly larger breakout room groups, three or four people, um, so that it wasn't just like this awkward shock. I know whenever... <laughs> I am put in a breakout room with people. I am very mad about it. So <laughs> I completely sympathize with the students that are like, this is so awkward. Why is she making us do this? 
I also think to make the conversation really meaningful, if it is like a distance learning breakout room format, just having like a very clear, simple deliverable helps where the students all are responsible for writing something down that's not too hard or difficult to understand, but will just show that they listen to each other during the discussion. That has been really helping me because you just can't, um, you can't listen to all of your students' conversations the way you used to be able to circulate through your room and monitor. And so that's just a way for me to keep myself from going insane, trying to ensure like every single student is being meaningful at all times. <laughs> yeah. I also think this is taking it in a different direction, but we mentioned Parlay, the website earlier, and Parlay has this feature where the kids all get anonymized. And I have found like, especially for the awkwardness of middle school, some kids definitely are more honest and open when they have this anonymous identity, you know, in a positive way, in a way where they're willing to share more and say more. So I think that sometimes maybe having like a typed out anonymized discussion could be really helpful. That is such a good reminder that Parlay has that, has that feature. I really like that. In our last couple of minutes together, no teacher conversation about collaboration would be complete unless we talked about the good old group project. Uh, I know teachers who love them. I know teachers who certainly do not. I'm curious, do you use um, structured group projects that span more than one day in your classrooms? And how have you made those work if you use them in a self-paced mastery-based learning environment? Well, when I do group projects, they're not allowed to choose their groups. Those have to be extremely structured because I can't have somebody who's ahead of pace with someone who's one or two lessons behind. So usually when it comes to group projects, you are grouped based on where you are. You're given provided a rubric. It has been my newest thing is writing rubrics. <laughs> so you get a rubric. And you look at kind of where you would fall on the rubric, and that's what you need to accomplish. And if you don't accomplish it exactly right, you get to go back and do it again. And they kind of, that's worked a little bit where they get a class period. If they don't finish it, they come back the next day and they can work on it. Usually I don't give two whole class periods. I try not to give anything that would take that kind of time. So they usually get about half the class period before they need to get back on the track. Um, on their on their board. So I haven't had too, too much experience outside of IB. Uh, they work better with doing group projects. It, that's kind of just how I do it. I just group them based on where they are and their parameters is set based on where they are. So the idea that should, must do, like everybody's must is the same because that's really what the goal is. But what comes after that depends on where you are. I love that grouping them by those kind of yeah who got who got who got what done before X date. That's a that's a natural grouping. Emily, what about you? Group projects, love them, hate them. Do you do them? <laughs> I think I'm definitely naturally a teacher that would be afraid to do them. But I did have one really positive experience with them in my modern classroom last year. I did. This is actually a couple years ago. I had a coach that told me, you love to just like stand in front and like run and control the class, but your students are really ready to like take on more independence. This was pre-modern classroom. Um, and so I started doing like student-led small group discussions. And basically I would give the passage and give a list of questions and I would tell like a group leader 
where should you pause and what questions should you ask? And the group leader would just be uh, a little teacher in their group and run the discussion. And then because it was only, let's say, four students in that group, every student just got so much more opportunity to respond to each of the questions and a lot more coaching and a lot more patience. And so I kind of translate that into modern classrooms last year. Uh, each group had a group leader. They got to choose a story they wanted to read and they read through it. And then after they read it, they had like clear, like Tavia was saying, it has to be extremely structured. They had like three or four clear tasks that they had to do that were very visible, easy to monitor, easy to put onto your pacing tracker. And this unit lasted two weeks. So base, it was kind of a group paced unit, I guess you would say. Some groups worked their way through one story in two weeks. Um, some groups worked their way through two stories in two weeks. I just loved that multiple different students had the opportunity to be leaders. And sometimes um, after one student saw another student be the leader, with a little bit of that like peer-to-peer modeling, they were then ready to like take on that mantle and lead their group. And then I love that students were getting more individualized attention than I could give them. If we had read that short story whole class and discuss it whole class, there'd be so much less student voice. So that was one of my favorite units last year. And hopefully I'll be able to do it this year also. Oh, I hope so too. I hope, <laughs> I hope whatever you need from <laughs> whatever you need to make that happen from, um, from the public health officials and all of us. Um, I hope you get to do that one in person. That'd be so cool. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Tavia and Emily. This was really fun. I have 10 million more questions I could ask you both. Um, thank you so much to you, the listener. If you can do us a quick favor. We have a survey that is live and we need you to take it because we want to be better for teachers. So we'll put it in the show notes. It's also on our website, just a simple educator survey. Um, and we have some pretty cool prizes for select winners, including iPads, tech subscriptions, and the modern classroom tote bag. Um, so please see the show notes or our website to take that survey. Deadline is November 15th. Um, you can always learn more about modern classrooms at our website, www www.modernclassrooms.org and through our online course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. We have the free version of our course, or you can sign up for the virtual mentorship programs and work with amazing mentors like Tavia and Emily. You can always find us at social media on Twitter at Modern Class Proj, and we are here for you and your questions. Thank you, everybody, and have a great week. Stay safe. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.